Today marks the end of our series on identity. Uh, we have finally wrapped things up after this Sunday. It's been quite a journey, and, and I hope it's one that has uh, been meaningful for you and has spoken to you in a variety of different ways. We started this, this discussion by really asking the question of uh, why do we even exist? Who am I, right? The understanding of, of a pursuit of better, better seeing who we are, understanding our identity gives a tremendous foundation to living a courageous life. And, and it's a question that we all ask. And so we establish in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that we ask it because God has set eternity in the hearts of mankind, but we can't fathom what he has done from beginning to end. Our longing for meaning, our longing for purpose is to find something that endures. It's, it's the longing for the eternal. And we long for eternity because that's what God has set in our hearts. And he set in our hearts because we are made in the image of the eternal God. So we naturally long for it. So that's what we established at the beginning. <clears throat> then we looked at how culture tends to answer the question of identity and, and spoke to kind of the challenges of where we are now, that there's the separation, it seems, of body and spirit. And so as a result, our identity is always found by looking within um, rather than looking beyond ourselves and establishing our own truth, our own sense of self. And that, that deviates from what we see scripturally, that, that God created all of it, not with a separation, but he created our inmost being. And the truth and identity is really going to be found in him. And so we, we use those first two introductions to then pivot to the image of God and walk through uh, numerous passages in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, talking about what is the image of God, but more importantly, even the implications of being made in the image of God, implications that speak to our understanding of worth, our understanding of work, our understanding of relationships. And, and after we kind of established uh, the, the basis of the image of God, we took a break and went over to Colossians 1 and said that all these things that we have been looking at and studying in Genesis 1 and 2, that it was all created in him, through him, and for him, that Christ was there at the beginning. He is the sustainer of all things, that he was the reason for this creation. But then as we went back to Genesis and looked at Genesis 3, we saw that this design, as beautiful as it is, as beautiful as it was, has been frustrated by the fall and by the curse. And so this flourishing in God's image, this, this intent, this responsibility that he gave us, it's, it's been in a frustrated state in this earthly existence because of the sin of the fall and because of the curse. And so now we long for something to be restored, something to be renewed. And so Jesus enters into the story as the one that's going to restore this image in us. And he restores it through the incarnation. He restores it through his death and resurrection. And then today we will cap off the fullness of Christ's restoration by looking at the promise of new creation and all that he does in giving us the hope of a new creation. Now, when we talk about new creation, that's a broad topic. Uh, that's, that's an extensive topic. You, you think about the way that it's described in Revelation, and you really do begin to see that it is a story of Eden being restored, right? It's the story of going from garden to city. In Revelation, it's described as the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem speaks to this idea uh, that we get to be with God forever. It speaks to the idea that there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. It is a new heaven and a new earth. There, there are tremendous implications with all those things I just referenced just by looking at Revelation and other places in the scripture. And so that is a context, that is a background that I want you to have, but where we're going to narrow our focus today is really how does it speak to our identity? What will it mean for us 
What does it mean for our existence in Eden, in, in this restored Eden, this new Jerusalem, and how do we begin to build a hope based on this plan for us? And to order for us to really kind of dive into that, we're going to look at specifically how the resurrected life, right, the resurrected King, the resurrected Savior, uh, begins to impact us with the hope of our own personal resurrection. And so in order to, to dive into the implications of the resurrection for you and me and how it shapes our identity and our place within uh, the New Jerusalem, <clears throat> we're going to be in one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, First uh, Corinthians 15. All right, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there to First Corinthians 15. Truly one of my favorites. I, I love this chapter. It is a long chapter, and it is filled with tremendous amounts of hope and, and mystery and intrigue. I mean, there's so much to dive into. We're not going to dive into all of it, um, <clears throat> but we're going to dive into a lot of it to the best of our ability. And, and we're going to be in the kind of second half of it. But before we get to those verses and we read through those a little bit at a time, uh, I want you to make sure that you have a, a little bit of a grasp of what Paul has established up to this point in this chapter. So if, if you were to just kind of follow along. I'm going to summarize. At the beginning of chapter 15, Paul offers a reminder of the gospel. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel to which you believed and which you've taken your stand. And he, he gives a very succinct description of the gospel, that Jesus was crucified according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared, right? He appeared to more than 500 people, most of whom are still living, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which is basically a way of him saying, go and talk to these folks. You, you can go see these people, and they will tell you about how Jesus appeared to them, and he references all the different folks that he appeared to. And after he mentions that, he begins to kind of transition into this discussion about the resurrection, right? He, he begins to explain a little bit more about the resurrection because this was a common question at that point in time. Specifically, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? And so he brings this question forward, and he says, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, then you don't really believe Christ was raised. And, and if that's true, if Christ wasn't raised, I mean, you should read Paul's description of this. He says, if Christ wasn't raised, then he, meaning Paul and the apostles, they're false witnesses about God, that we, our faith is futile, um, we're still in our sins, our preaching is useless, right? That, that we are actually to be pitied more than all people. I mean, he brings very direct and harsh language that if there is no resurrection of the dead, if Christ isn't raised, then this is all pointless. We are essentially the laughingstock of humanity. We are to be pitied more than anyone else. His emphasis is that the resurrection of Christ is essential. That's where it, it rises and falls. And so because of that, he begins to explain the implications for you and me. Right? He, he gives this, this affirmation, but Christ is raised, right? We, our faith isn't futile, right? In the same way that death entered the world through one man, right? Life enters the world through one man, that in Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. And so he emphasizes the significance of the resurrection, and then that leads him into a more detailed description of what it will look like. And so we're going to take this kind of chunks at a time, all right? We're going to be picking up in chapter 15, verse 35, and we're going to see how it brings in uh, a, a better understanding of this mystery and specifically how it's going to shape our identity and the resurrective or the resurrection impact for us. Starting in verse 35, <clears throat> he says, but someone will ask, 
How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another, birds another, and fish another. And there are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and the star differs from star in splendor. Okay, let's stop right there. All right, so the, the first statement, right? He presents the question, so how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they have? And he says, don't you know how foolish what, what uh, you sow does not come to life unless it dies, All right? So the first thing I want us to see Right, which is kind of stating the obvious, but an important obvious statement to make is that death is the gateway into life. Right? You don't experience the hope of resurrection without death. Right? You don't get the opportunity to be brought into this resurrected state, this life, unless it dies. And so, listen, yes, when we, if we were to really dive into it and we started talking about the mystery of when Jesus returns and some will be caught up to the air, like, there, there is an element to that which we won't get into in detail today. But the main point of emphasis is that the hope of resurrection is connected to death, right? That, that death is part of the gateway for us. If it was the gateway for Jesus, right? If Jesus had to embrace the fullness of our humanity, right? If he had to embrace the fullness of, fullness of our mortality, then that is, that is on the horizon for us as well. If, if Jesus wasn't able to be spared death, then neither will we. Right? Like that, that, is, that is part of the progression that we have to understand and we have to anticipate. And, and that is critical if we're going to lead this conversation to a place of being fearless, being courageous, being hopeful, even in the face of death and all of its implications. Right? Nothing comes to life unless it dies, right? Now, from here, we begin to see this imagery that Paul uses. He uses three different examples of what kind of body the dead will have when they are raised. And you see uh, a reference to different types of seed. You see a reference to different types of flesh, right? Humans have one flesh, animals another, birds another, fish another. You see a, a reference to the different types of splendor between earthly bodies and heavenly bodies, heavenly bodies like the sun, the moon, and the stars. And essentially what Paul is trying to, to make a point of is that God has determined, he has ordered the material world, right? Like he, he's the one that is established with what kind of uh, physical presence, physical manifestation these bodies will have. He determines each according to their kind and that there is this transformation in splendor, that essentially there is going to be a difference between what we know in this life and the resurrected body. It's going to be clothed with a different kind of splendor. And so of these three different images that he uses for us, the one that really grabs my attention the most is the seed, the seed being planted in the ground. In fact, I, I know that this is a common image, and I know it's something that we all understand, but I actually grabbed a, a video, a time-lapse video that I'm going to have them play while I talk through this, because I want you to see it again, right? When you think about the splendor of a seed, and you see that simplicity, uh, simple little seed that's put in the ground, and then it's watered, and then we all know that just in a matter of time, right? I mean, it could be days. I mean, I think this one is, is like 90 days or something along those lines. 
What transforms is drastically different. It looks nothing like what was planted in the ground. And what's amazing about this is that though that transformation is about to take place and you see it taking place, we all know that when we see the, the blooming of a flower, we know it comes from a seed, right? And, and to the point that we can even study different types of seed and recognize, well, that's a mustard seed, that's an avocado seed, that's, that's the seed for a lily, that's the seed for a rose. And we can anticipate the sort of change and the transformation that takes place once you plant a seed into the ground. And that sort of transformation is remarkable. And this is the image that Paul is calling to mind. When you think about that which dies, our body being laid into the ground, look at the splendor of that flower, church, right? It's remarkable. And you think about that which is laid into the ground and the ability for it to be transformed, the ability for it to be absolutely renewed to a different kind of splendor. That's the picture that Paul wants us to have of the resurrection, right? It's, it's totally different. It's a new kind of splendor. And so what does that transformation look like? Well, that's what he begins to explain with greater detail, picking back up in verse 42. He says, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Okay, think about the descriptions that Paul just offers here to what our earthly bodies um, feel like and, and how we experience them, how we, we go through this life. The, the terms that he uses here are that our bodies are perishable, dishonorable, weak, and natural. Right? And, and so if you were to kind of define those terms, perishable means decay. Um, uh, weakness means limitations, disabilities, inabilities, illnesses. Dishonor means common use. Natural means worldly. That's who we are. And, and I know that we go through life and there are times where, where we're not cognizant of that, but more often than not, life has a funny way of reminding us of our fragility, uh, of our temporary state that we really are kind of moving towards a never-ending process towards decay. No matter what season of life you're in, whether you're eight or 85, we're all moving towards that fragile sort of end of life. And, and we get these constant reminders of it, whether it's illnesses, whether it's, it's uh, weaknesses, broken bones, whatever it may be. Just, like just the other day, man, I, I was like getting out of a chair and I felt like right on the back of my neck, uh, back of my leg, right above my knee. I was like, man, that really hurts. I must have a bruise there. And I looked uh, at the back of my leg and I had this gnarly bruise right here above my knee. And I seriously cannot remember what in the world I did to cause that bruise. And it reminded me of growing up and going over to my grandmother's house. And literally all these times I would see her with like this bruise on her arm or something. I'd be like, Grandma, what'd you do to your arm? And I'd expect like this really elaborate story of how she slammed it into the garage door or she fell or something. And I can't tell you how many times she was like, I don't know. I'm like, well, what do you mean you don't know? She's like, I don't know. You just bruise when you get old. And so like that all came rushing back when I saw this <laughs> bruise on the back of my heart. I was like, man, I'm old. I don't even know where it came from. But like we have all these reminders that our body is fragile. It is on the way to decay. No, no matter what you do, you can go work out all you want. Man, you, you can do everything. You can't stop it. It is fragile. It is moving towards decay, right? It is perishable. But look at what will change. 
right? It will go from that which decays, that which is common, that which is, is of normal use, limited use, and it will be raised imperishable. It'll be raised in glory. It'll be raised in power. It will go from natural to spiritual. That is a drastic transformation. Does that land with you this morning? Think about that for a moment, church. Think about it. All the frustration of living this earthly life, all of its limitations changed into glory and power. It's incredible. All right, and, and that's the hope. Now, that last description there, spiritual, from natural to spiritual, to me is a really important one. All right, and, and Paul digs deeper into it in this next paragraph. Let's keep going. He says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. All right, let's talk about this paragraph. We've talked a lot about uh, spiritual and physical distinction, right, throughout the course of this series. And so here you have a reference to the natural body and the spiritual body. But what I want you to see is that this is not suggesting an immaterial body, right, like just a soul that, that floats into heaven. That's not what is being referenced here. Uh, that would negate the surrounding context of the entire chapter and really the Bible as a whole. Uh, as we said, there is a clear teaching in Scripture that there is a spiritual and physical reality, but they aren't separate. They're fused together. So natural means worldly. Spiritual means of the Spirit. Okay? It doesn't necessarily mean that you're like this floating essence, right? It just means born of the Spirit. And so here's the difference that, that uh, Paul is trying to make. He's saying, in this earthly broken state, the reason you, you struggle with that which is perishable and that which is weak and dishonorable is because you bear the image of the earthly man, right, who was born of dust. And he's quoting back to Genesis 2-7, right, that God formed man out of the dust. You remember that? We actually looked at that. And that is our heritage. That, that is the current uh, lineage from which we come when it comes to our existence. We are born of a natural or earthly, worldly state. But what is on the horizon is to be born in the Spirit. Mark 1, 18, or excuse me, Matthew 1, 18 says that Jesus, or, or when, she, when Mary became pregnant, she was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was literally born of the Spirit of a different sort. He is from heaven. And what he offers to those after his departure and his ascension is the Spirit of God. We're going to see that more here in just a little bit. And so the point is, is that once we go through this resurrection, we're no longer going to resemble the earthly man. We're going to resemble the heavenly man, right? Like that's going to be the transition. We're going to be born of the Spirit, life in the Spirit. We're going to be born not from the things of earth, but the things of heaven. And so that last statement there in that paragraph is so critical just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, here's why I want to point that out. This whole series has sought to emphasize the idea that your identity is rooted in the fact that you are created in the image of God. 
right? If you go back to those conversations we had about that in Genesis 1 and 2, and how that influences your understanding of worth, work, relationships, like that is so significant. What I want you to see here is that that doesn't go away after you die. That doesn't change after the resurrection, right? After the resurrection, you still bear the image of the heavenly man. And so your responsibility, what you were created to do, your vocation as, as those who have been given and gifted the image of God, it doesn't cease after death. It doesn't cease with the resurrection. It's actually enhanced. You're finally created in a way to fully represent the one who made you. Church, that has to have massive implications on your understanding of who you are, what you were created to do, who you were created to be, your whole existence in this life and the life to come is to reflect the image of your creator. And so that needs to orient everything about your understanding of who you are and your purpose, your work, your worth, your relationships. It doesn't stop. It only is enhanced and increases upon the resurrection. We get to bear the image of Christ. He restores it in accordance to what God originally intended. All right, so let's take a look at how that unfolds. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Excuse me, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed. Let's stop right there. So his point right here, again, is pretty significant. Uh, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, right? And so that statement should take you back to Genesis 3, right? That what happens after we've been created in God's image and we're frustrated uh, through sin and through the curse is that God banishes us from the garden. Like we, we don't get to participate in the kingdom anymore because death has entered because uh, sin and death, because the curse is now a reality, there is now separation and distance. This earthly existence cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And we saw that from the very beginning. There has to be separation. So if we are ever going to be with God again, if we are ever going to fully live out uh, the purpose of being made in his image, something has to change. And he says, we will all be changed. Listen, I tell you a mystery, he says. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And it is a mystery, one that is difficult for us to get our minds wrapped around, right? Even if we can see the promises and we can see that the alluring uh, hope behind it, we still have all these questions. Well, what will that look like? What will that be? And, and I don't want to stand up here today and, and pretend like we can give a, a ton of definitive answers and a, a great detailed explanation, but I do think we can lean into the mystery a little bit, right? And, and I want us to consider this mystery um, through a slightly different lens, because in 1 Corinthians 15, similar to what we saw last week in, in Colossians 1, Paul has already acknowledged that Jesus is the first fruit from among the dead. Colossians says firstborn, first fruit, firstborn, more or less mean the same thing, that Jesus was the first to demonstrate, to, to be resurrected, to, to uh, exemplify this resurrected life, but more to come. He's the firstborn from those resurrected among the dead. He's the first fruit from those resurrected among the dead. And so if we were to look to Jesus, 
and look at his resurrection, his resurrected life, his, his appearances, then I think that is a way for us to step into the mystery of what it will look like for us. And I don't, we're going to revisit these passages for a little bit, and I don't want to uh, uh, offer too strongly like, hey, this is a definitive understanding of what it will be. But I do think we're going to get some clues, some, some key foundational ideas from Jesus' resurrection that will help inform what ours will be like as well. And so here's what I want to do. What I really want to do is just read to you all these stories um, of Jesus' appearing after, after his resurrection. We don't have time for that. It would take too long. So I'm, gonna, I'm still going to read them. I didn't tell them to put them on the screen because that was way too much work for them. Uh, if you want to try to follow along, I'm going to like skim and paraphrase and then read certain sections because I want you to hear the stories of Jesus' ascension, not, not just his ascension, but his resurrection and his appearances, okay? And so we're going to look in a couple different places. I'm going to start with Luke 24, okay? And we're, this is Jesus on the road to Emmaus, okay? So listen to what we see about the resurrected Christ. Um, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And then they give him an answer. I love it. Jesus is like, no, what happened? I just, I think it's hilarious the way that he responds and engages in the conversation. But then they give an explanation of everything that happened. And then uh, Jesus says, how foolish are you? This is what had to happen to the Messiah. He had to suffer these things. And one of my favorite verses, Jesus told them everything from Moses to the prophets in the scriptures concerning himself. Talk about the best sermon of all time. That was it right there. All right. And, and I would have loved to have been there. So after that, listen to what it says. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if, they were, as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while, while they still did not believe it because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? Jesus was hungry and I love that. That's so, I, I feel you, Jesus. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. And then he goes on and he explains, these were the things that had to happen. And he continues to give them instruction to wait um, until they are clothed with power on high. And then look at the end of Luke 24. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. 
And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Okay, John chapter 20. A similar story, this time with Mary. Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept, and she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where they have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them what he, that she had said these things to her. And on that evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And then Thomas, as we know, the story of doubting Thomas, he says, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my hands in the scars. And then he shows up. And he tells him, put your hands in my scars, and he does. He says, my Lord, my God. And Jesus blesses him and said, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe and haven't seen. And then one, or two, two more quick ones. John 21, the disciples are out getting ready to fish. Simon's like, I'm gonna go fish. The other guys are like, hey, I'll go with you. And so they're out there. And then early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And so then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish where they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. And so Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay, last one, Acts chapter 1. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. So match that with 1 Corinthians 15 that says he appeared to more than 500 people. So if you have ever wondered about who all saw the resurrected Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 15 and Acts chapter 1, for more than 40 days, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. Okay, so this wasn't just like, what, does Mary, did, did she like fool us? Like it was substantial, Okay. And and he spoke of this over 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. 
Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, born of the Spirit. And he talks about being his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And then after this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Okay, got all those in there. Remarkable stories. They give us a, a glimmer into the mystery of the resurrection, okay? Here are the things that I wanna point out and why I read all of them, because every single one of those accounts have certain commonalities, okay? And, and one of the first things that we see is that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, was not recognizable, but recognizable. Which is weird, isn't it? Like, I've always wrestled with that, especially when I was younger, because I thought, you know, these people were walking with Jesus for years, He's crucified, he's resurrected like three days later, and they can't tell it's him? Like, doesn't that mean maybe they were just hoping they saw somebody that looked like Jesus, and, and that's where they got this idea of the resurrection? Like, it, to me, it, it made it a little sketchy, but, but there's something more powerful and significant about this, right? The reason they couldn't recognize him is because he was changed. <laughs> and, and that may seem odd, and, and uh, unassuring to you, but let me tell you, this happens to us all the time, right? In fact, Timothy Keller was one of the first ones that I ever heard describe this in, in a very simple way that I thought really makes sense. Is he would talk about those times that maybe you see somebody when they're younger. Let's say you, you knew somebody when they were 12, and then you don't see them for decades, right? And you see them again when they're 25, 28, something along those lines, and you, you interact with them, and they say, hey, it's, it's me, it's, it's Johnny. And you look at him, and you go, Oh, it, it is you, right? Like we have this all the time. There's this Geico commercial right now with Ken Griffey Jr. in it. And, and y'all, I watched it three times before I realized they had put his name at the bottom of the screen, Ken Griffey Jr. And I, on that third time, I was like, that is Ken Griffey Jr. Like I watched it two or three times, had no idea it was him, right? We do this all the time. We don't recognize someone and then we recognize someone. Okay, and that has happened here with Jesus. And it's really remarkable because what that tells us is two things. He's changed. He has the resurrected body. He's been clothed with the imperishable. He's different. That's why they couldn't recognize him, but they recognized him. You and I will be recognizable with the resurrected body. And what that means is that your life matters. Your personhood who God created you to be, your story, it all matters. It isn't lost, it doesn't go away, it doesn't just vanish, it's preserved in some new and glorious, mysterious way. You'll be different, you'll be changed, but you'll be you. That's remarkable. And that's further emphasized by the second commonality. Uh, Jesus was physically resurrected and present. Right, he was not some spirit. He literally says, I'm not a ghost. I have flesh and bones. He shows them his scar. He eats with them every single time. Is that not cool? Like every single account of his appearing, he is eating with them, sharing a meal with them. He is physically present, 
to the point that he even show his scars. Now, this is the part that I don't know how much we can take, right? Because it may just be that Jesus gets to preserve his scars because he's Jesus, and those scars change the course of human history. But it reiterates this idea that your story in this life matters. The, the earthly suffering of Jesus transferred over into his resurrected state, not in a way that brought sorrow or pain or, or suffering like we've already been promised won't exist in the new creation, but in a way that brings glory. Your story matters. We are not going to just be some sort of spiritual being, but we are gonna be embodied, resurrected, new image creations. It's remarkable. A couple other commonalities that I've gotta keep us going here is that obviously in every single one there was like a mysterious appearing and disappearing, right? Showing up when doors were locked, disappearing after he broke bread. I don't know what that means. All, all to me that I take from that is that this is the new kind of splendor, right? It's different. Something has changed. And then in these accounts, there's a reference to the ascension that he can now, because he is clothed in the imperishable, can now go and be with the Father. That which separated us, that which kept us distant, is no more. We are now clothed in a way that we get to be in community and union with the Father. Y'all, this has tremendous impact on how we live life and how we approach death. Let me offer a quote. Uh, you know who it is, Carmen Joy Imes. Uh, I love this. Um, she says, if we are captivated by a vision of creational flourishing and participate in wholeheartedly, the glories of this world are merely the beginning. Our work through scripture has shown us that our work matters because God is in the process of restoring all things. This world is not a failed experiment or a temporary staging ground for eternity. God called it very good. And in the midst of our suffering and disillusionment, God invited us to pray honestly, to let go of our own need to understand everything and to trust him and to learn to enjoy the journey. It is a mystery, but this life matters. Right, Christ is going to redeem and restore all of it. You preserve your personhood, but in a new and glorious resurrected way. Right, and so when will this happen? Let's finish off First Corinthians church. We're almost done. It'll happen in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will all be changed. This comes, obviously, from another passage of Scripture uh, that reminds us of 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's my hope for us today. I want to encourage you. This is not some fairy tale. This is not once upon a time happily ever after to make you feel better when you go to bed at night. This is the whole reason for your existence. We will be with the Lord forever. Set free from the bondage of sin and death. This is the story of Eden restored in our place within it. 
Revelation 22 offers that description. I referenced it earlier. I want to make sure that we hear it this morning. It's just five verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. And that's the reference, reference to the garden. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign with him forever and ever. You see the restoration of Eden in this new city, this new Jerusalem, restored relationships where we were once kept from the tree of life, we're now brought in and we feel it's healing and it's the healing of the nations. It's restored relationships with one another. It's a restored relationship with Christ, a restored relationship with our creator. There is no more curse. There's no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain. We have this opportunity to then live out what we were initially intended to do when it said in Genesis 1, rule over the earth, subdue it. Now we get to reign with him forever and ever. It is the story of Eden restored. It is the story of the new Jerusalem. Let me encourage you with these words together, church. Eden will be restored and so will we. (laughs) And so what that means for us is very simple. It doesn't matter what this life throws at you. Christ is your hope. And you want to go through a broken home, job loss, disillusionment, depression, loneliness, pick it. You're struggling to find meaning, struggling to find existence. Christ is your hope. You think about um, what some people in this world are facing. I've, I've put myself in the shoes of those in Israel and Gaza numerous times over the last few weeks. Even if the full demonstration of evil is on your doorstep, Christ is your hope. See, what, what Paul ends this journey with, he says, there is a day where death will be swallowed up in victory where we will see that death is no more. And so he says, let me encourage you then, let nothing move you. Stand firm, because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So when you go through these things in life, stand firm, church. Live courageously. Know who you are. Know who you were created to be. Know who you're destined to be. And so whether it's in life, or in the face of death, stand firm, because Christ is your hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. God, our words fall short. It's impossible to convey the majesty and the weight and the mystery of what you have done for us. And so I pray that as only you can, through your spirit, through your power, you would erupt within us an overwhelming expression of hope. God, that we would be courageous people because we know who we are 
We know who we were created to be. We know what you designed us to do. And no matter what we face in this life, God, that we would be able to stand firm and trust in you. God, that we would be able to truly give you all that we are and be able to truly represent the hope of Christ in life and in death. Father, we love you, and we pray all of this to be used for your glory. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen and amen.